In the pantheon of film history, there are few movies regarded to be absolutely perfect. And film buffs for decades have easily argued why Back to the Future fits that bill. While a classic in every way, making the movie was anything but perfect. From the years it took convincing a studio to make it, to replacing an overly serious actor weeks into filming, Back to the Future overcame its mountains of troubles, so it wouldn't only be seen as a shit show. In 1977, Robert Zemeckis, an inexperienced but brash filmmaker, barged into Amblin Productions. Without an appointment, he ignored the secretary completely and walked straight into Steven Spielberg's office. Zemeckis showed Spielberg his short film, A Field of Honor. The sheer gumption of Zemeckis paid off. Spielberg loved the short and gave him the chance to direct a feature film. Zemeckis returned to his college buddy, Bob Gale, and the two of them wrote the Beatlemania comedy, I Wanna Hold Your Hand. For the first time, Spielberg would take the role of an executive producer. Universal Pictures agreed to finance the film with the caveat that if Zemeckis showed any sign he was in over his head, Spielberg would take over. Zemeckis didn't disappoint. The film reviewed extremely well, however audiences never showed up. But Spielberg now had two creatives in his corner. In 1978, Spielberg wanted to try his hand at comedy and purchased the next screenplay from Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, aka The Bobs. 1941 was an action comedy parodying the panic of a rumored air raid on Los Angeles during World War II. The reviews weren't great, and while it wasn't a flop, it didn't make Spielberg amounts of money, so history remembers it as a bomb. The Bobs then wrote their third film, with Zemeckis directing and Spielberg, once again, executive producing. Used Cars, a dark comedy about competing car salesmen, received mixed reviews and again tanked at the box office. The Bobs now had three failures under their belt, all with Spielberg's name on them. Around this time, Bob Gale visited his parents and came across his father's high school yearbook. And I'm thumbing through it and I find out that my father had been the president of his graduating class. I didn't know this. And I'm looking at him and thinking about the president of my graduating class, who was a guy I'd have nothing to do with. And I thought, would I have been friends with him if I had gone to high school, or would I have just hated his guts? The idea struck him, and he brought it to Zemeckis, and the two of them workshopped it. Both being fans of time travel, they developed the story of a high schooler traveling to 1955 and meeting his parents. Their first stab at the plot is mostly similar to the final product, with some minor changes, like the time machine being a refrigerator, and instead of a lightning strike to get back to the future, they break into an army base to detonate a f***ing atomic bomb. With the idea in hand, the Bobs feared they were perceived as the duo who only got film deals because they were Spielberg's friends. And if they made another film with him that bombed, their careers would be over. They decided to make this one on their own. The Bobs took their screenplay to Frank Price, president of Columbia Pictures. Price was known for taking risky bets on films, like used cars. But a lot of the time, his gambles were rewarded. From Gandhi to Ghostbusters, he saw potential where others didn't. He liked used cars and wanted to make another film with Zemeckis and Gale. When the Bobs pitched their sci-fi comedy, Back to the Future, he was sold in 30 seconds and hired them to write the full script. When they returned in 1981, Columbia was in the middle of a power struggle due to a looming buyout from Coca-Cola. 
The Bobs were told that today's audiences wanted teen sex comedies, and their script wasn't nearly raunchy enough. Columbia shelved it. Annoyed and confused, the Bobs shopped their screenplay around town. For years. Every studio thought it was cute, but not for them. Except for Disney, who were appalled by the light incest. It's like I'm kissing my brother. The Bobs continued to write for Spielberg, but none of it went anywhere. A fed-up Zemeckis needed to break free and prove himself a competent director outside the shadow of his mentor. Fortunately for him, Michael Douglas was producing his next film and hand-picked Zemeckis to direct it. The adventure romantic comedy, Romancing the Stone, released in March of 1984. Two terrific reviews, and this time was a big success. Zemeckis' reputation changed overnight, fielding offers left and right, but he used his newfound clout to get Back to the Future off the ground. At this point, the Bobs figured, why not team up with the one guy that had believed in them since the beginning? They uh, came back and they brought me the script called Back to the Future. And they said, uh, you know, we'd like you to be involved in this. We think it's uh, something we really want to do. And I read it and loved it. And it was different than anything I'd ever seen in the movie theater. I mean, I couldn't believe what an accomplished and fun piece of writing it was. Spielberg set the project up at his own Amblin Entertainment and then got Sid Sheinberg, president of Universal Studios, to finance it. But one problem still remained. Columbia commissioned the screenplay, therefore owned it. As luck would have it, the current top executive at Universal was none other than Frank Price, the same man who ordered the script in the first place. He had jumped ship after Coca-Cola took over Columbia Pictures and landed at Universal at the perfect time. He knew Columbia was just sitting on Back to the Future and needed a way to get it. That hopefully didn't mean outright buying it. Price's former employee, Guy McElwain, had become studio chief at Columbia and they were days away from production on a comedy called Big Trouble. But Columbia's lawyer suddenly feared it was so similar to Billy Wilder's seminal classic Double Indemnity, they'd get sued by Universal. So ironically, McElwain needed Price's sign-off as permission to make Big Trouble. A desperate McElwain made the call. Price played coy, saying he'd think about it and call him the next day. Price called back, agreed to give him the rights, if he was okay with parting with two scripts. I knew Guy, He'd be, he would have been suspicious if it was just Back to the Future. He agreed to the deal and uh, I gave him the license for double indemnity and he gave me the two properties, one of which I didn't want, but I got the one I wanted. Back to the Future was one step away from being a reality. Sid Sheinberg had requested another draft of the screenplay and gave the Bobs a few notes that were more or less requirements. Some were reasonable, Marty McFly couldn't be a VHS movie pirate. Some were smart, rather than Professor Brown, make it Doc Brown and make his pet a dog instead of a monkey. But his strangest request was he wanted to retitle the film Spaceman from Pluto. One day we get this memo and it says, I've come up with the perfect title for this movie, Spaceman from Pluto. And so Bob and I went to Stephen and we said, what do we do? And he turned to his assistant and he said, let's send Sid a memo. Dear Sid, thank you for your most humorous memo of November 14th. We all got a big laugh out of it. 
keep him coming. We knew that Sid was too embarrassed to admit that he was serious and we never heard about it again. The Bobs made the changes while also updating the time machine from a fridge in the back of a pickup truck to its own mobile unit, a DeLorean DMC-12, chosen for its bizarre look and gullwing doors. The green light was given. It was on to casting. The Bobs had only one person in mind for Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox, who had the exact amount of likability and buoyancy that they were looking for. However, Fox was committed to NBC's popular family ties, and the series producer, Gary Goldberg, refused to let Fox step away, let alone read the screenplay. The Bobs went on an exhaustive search for another actor, testing Johnny Depp, John Cusack, and Charlie Sheen, None of them had that Michael J. Fox quality. Scheinberg began pressuring them to make a decision. The film was due in the summer of 1985, and if production didn't start soon, he would pull the plug. The choice came down to The Outsiders C. Thomas Howell and Eric Stoltz, a personal suggestion of Scheinberg. Stoltz was in the middle of shooting Mask, and Scheinberg swore by the kid's acting chops. The Bobs liked Stoltz, but not for Marty. Yet Scheinberg forced their hand. So being a, a young and a uh, hungry filmmaker and maybe uh, having a bit of an inflated ego, I thought, well, I can make this work. Just before production kicked off in earnest, Scheinberg made one last demand. The Bobs needed to shave $5 million off the budget. A crazy stipulation this late in the game. The Bobs looked at their script and determined the most costly sequence of the film was the atomic bomb explosion. They spent a weekend trying to figure out what would top something as dramatic as that. Standing in the newly constructed Hill Valley Town Square, which wasn't cheap, they realized that if they shot the finale there too, it would save them millions. That's when it struck them. A lightning bolt and a stroke of brilliant ideas. How would you know when a bolt hit? It stopped something. Like a clock. A clock tower! Duh! The movie is about time! It was perfect. A clock was then added to the town's courthouse. They also really geeked out at the image of Christopher Lloyd hanging from a clock, just like Harold Lloyd did in Safety Last. Don't worry, 23 years later, Spielberg went ahead and used the atomic bomb fridge sequence to much fanfare in the fourth Indiana Jones film. Production started at the end of November 1984, and it immediately felt like something was off. Rain consistently delayed outdoor shooting, a store sign fell on an extra, and Eric Stoltz was clearly not right for the part. I remember really vividly him saying that he thought it was a... They said, how do you feel, Eric? And he said, I think it's a tragedy. My character remembers a past that no one else remembers. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember. I was like... For starters, Stoltz was a method actor, and he made everyone on set call him Marty, to the point Christopher Lloyd literally thought that was his name. He obviously took the craft of acting seriously, but in doing so, he dragged the material into a darker tone and would outright argue with the Bobs about the character that they had written. He's a magnificent actor, but his comedy sensibilities were very different than what I had written with Bob, and he and I just never were able to make that work. Zemeckis wanted very deliberate comedic flourishes to his film, such as a simple moment of Marty walking on the wrong side of a pole and tripping over the curb. 
Stoltz didn't understand the impracticality of it and felt his character wasn't a bumbling idiot. Fights like this were frustratingly often. This went on for a full six weeks. I um, didn't want to believe that it wasn't working, so that's why I kept shooting and shooting. I was kind of in denial about it, and then I had to ultimately accept the truth. And he showed me the first five weeks of footage cut together, and he just said, I don't think we're getting the laughs that I was hoping we would, we, we would get. And, and I looked at Bob, and I realized that he was absolutely correct. The energy wasn't there. The jokes didn't land. Marty wasn't relatable. It was like Stoltz was in a different movie. After everything the Bobs went through to finally get this made, it just felt off. Zemeckis suggested again, we need Michael J. Fox. Zemeckis and Spielberg hatched a plan. Zemeckis would continue shooting for the next week and keep Universal in the dark to prevent them from shutting down production. He would rush through wide shots that had Stoltz in frame and focus more on close-ups of the rest of the cast, ignoring Stoltz entirely. This allowed him to have usable footage so he didn't have to throw everything out. It also made things real awkward on set as the crew knew something was up. Meanwhile, Spielberg and Gale negotiated with Gary Goldberg, practically begging him to let Fox join the film. Goldberg caved, but as long as family ties was the priority. So at Christmas time, I was called into Gary Goldberg's office and Gary uh, gave me an envelope, a manila envelope with the script in it. And he said, here's the script, take it home and read it. If you want to do it, and you know, do you have my blessing? Like, and I went like this, put it down on his desk and said, I love it. Best thing I ever read. And, um, and that was it. Once Fox agreed and actually read the script, Spielberg and Zemeckis finally told Sid Sheinberg. They explained how they didn't need to replace everything and they knew exactly every shot that they would need. They crunched the numbers, determining it would cost $4 million for the reshoots. Though Sheinberg had given them a hard time up until that point, he understood the situation and gave the go-ahead. Stoltz was fired on January 10th, 1985, and he wasn't that upset. He was clearly struggling with the character, didn't jive with the crew, and admitted that he only took the role because his agents said it would be a good career move. Five days later, Fox joined the cast. Every day he'd work 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Family Ties, get picked up in a station wagon with a mattress in the back, then film Back to the Future from 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. It gets to the point literally where a teamster was coming, turning on the shower, waking me up, and, and, and hustling me towards the shower and, and getting, getting me in the car, and I'd catch a few nap, a nap on the way into work, and it just kind of, I got caught up in this, this cyclone of, of activity and creativity of the highest level, just really brilliant people it was, it was pretty, pretty incredible, but it was, um, you really felt like you were doing something cool. Anytime Fox isn't on screen, he isn't on set yet. Zemeckis had maximized the shooting schedule, and he would take advantage of any free day Fox had. Once Michael arrived on set, the entire movie levitated in tone. His unique style and unbridled enthusiasm lifted everything. It became obvious this was what Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale intended the movie to be. Zemeckis was overjoyed by what Fox brought to his film, but in the back of his mind, he felt at any moment his crew would suddenly quit and protest for restarting everything. It didn't help that while he solved one problem with Stoltz, his issues with Crispin Glover only grew. 
The Bobs were thrilled with Glover's eccentric take on George McFly, but directing him was like herding cats. During the cafeteria scene, for example, Glover would bounce wildly in his seat, rustling his hair over and over. After every take, Zemeckis calmly tried to explain that his manic behavior was a nightmare for continuity and editing. It didn't stop until he was threatened to be duct taped to his chair. The final straw came at the end of the shoot, when Glover protested the idea that George was only happy in his new future because of his wealth. He argued to Zemeckis that the film was perpetuating propaganda that money equals happiness. Zemeckis had enough and snapped at Glover, who in turn became terrified that he too was going to get fired. On April 26th, shooting had wrapped. It was a really, really tough movie, doing big stuff for very little money. I was also carrying around this black cloud, thinking it's probably my last movie. How am I ever going to survive this? I'm going to be known as the fuck up director of all time. Don't forget, I had to deal with Crispin too. There was not a lot of joy in the making of Back to the Future. After the recasting snafu, the film's release was pushed from May 24th to July 19th. Still, it was a mad scramble to edit the movie in time, which was like a jigsaw puzzle, piecing together Stoltz footage with Fox's performance. Their first screening was a rough cut, but it received the highest audience test score in Universal's history. Their second preview, cut seven minutes, added about half of Alan Silvestri's score, and according to Spielberg, the audience's laughter was deafening, and the crowd repeatedly broke out into applause. Scheinberg was there to witness it. He was so pleased, he asked the filmmakers what would it take to get the movie ready for the July 4th weekend. Gale said it could be done, with more money. Scheinberg replied, I'll write the check. With less time, ILM had to rush through effect shots. The fading hand was saved for last and was given the stamp of acceptable. Back to the Future reached theaters on July 3rd, 1985. Hysterically bonkers, wonderfully unexpected, magnificently crafted, and just a pure, fun joyride. Universal knew it had a hit on its hands, but they didn't know how big. It was number one for three weeks, knocked down once to second with the release of National Lampoon's European Vacation, but returned to first place for nine straight weekends. It was the highest grossing film of 1985 and didn't leave theaters until March of 1986. It took years of convincing, but Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale got the last laugh. Little did they know their silly movie would become a cornerstone of pop culture, an endlessly rewatchable bite of comfort food that is widely considered a perfect movie. The Bobs, satisfied and ready to move on to the next project, walked into Sid Scheinberg's office. He congratulated them, admitted he was wrong about Stoltz, then asked the Bobs to make a sequel. They scoffed. As self-admitted film purists, to them sequels never worked. Then Scheinberg made it explicitly clear. Universal was making a sequel with or without them. Great Scott. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about this episode, you can view my sources and citations in the show notes. 
Find us on Twitter, Instagram, all at It Was a Shit Show. But shit without the eye, because, you know, this is a family show, obviously. Thanks to my co-host, Rain Clint, and to Ryan Hudson from Channel 8 for our amazing theme music. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find all these episodes on our YouTube channel. 